This is ODAT Chat, your instant connection to recovery and community, one day at a time. This podcast may contain strong language, sexual content, and spiritual truth. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. In preparation for this interview, I downloaded the audiobook My Fair Junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean by Amy Dresner. So for about a week, I listened to Amy tell her story as I drove to work, as I ran errands, and even as I went on hikes. By the time I sat down for the interview, I felt as though we had already been hanging out and we were already BFFs. So is that creepy? As it sounds, it didn't sound creepy when I sat down to write this, but (laughs) well, let's just say I am now an Amy fan. She's got a wicked sense of humor and she is a truth teller and I absolutely adore her for that. Anyway, uh, let me circle back to audible.com and say that if you don't already have it, you should totally get it. To make it even easier for you to jump in, listeners of ODAT Chat Podcast get their first book free. Just visit odatchat.com, that's O-D-A-A-T, chat.com, and look for the audible.com banner on the right. And if you're anything like me, you'll be obsessed. So you're welcome. Hi, friend. Welcome to ODAT Chat. My name is Arlena, and I'll be your host. The primary purpose of the podcast is to carry the message of hope to those who are still suffering from alcoholism and addiction. My guests and I talk about their addiction stories, what happened, what it was like, and what life of sobriety looks like now. Through these conversations, I'm looking to uncover the new ideas, changes in perspective, and the daily habits or routines that lead to healing and long-term recovery. But before I jump into the podcast today, so instead of a quote, I'll share a little prayer. It's called the set aside prayer. It goes like this. God, please help me set aside everything I think I know about myself, my disease, and especially you, so that I may have an open mind and a new experience of all these things. Please let me see the truth. So I absolutely love this prayer. The big book talks about the freedom from the bondage of self, and this is really how it happens. It cracks the facade of like self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and allows the possibility for something new to come in. So from a place of humility, we can remain teachable enough to allow ourselves to be healed. So there you have it. And today's conversation is with the author, comedian, and super fabulous speaker, Amy Dresner. We talk about her journey from the perch of Beverly Hills to her drinking and drugging that landed her into not only the depths of despair, but facing a felony for attempted murder, I think it was. Um, Not fun. But, uh, and as a heads up, let me just tell you, we talk about her book and we do cover some areas that can be considered a spoiler. So consider this uh, your spoiler alert, but it's so awesome and totally worth it. I don't even care. I had to just keep going. So, and just so you know, Amy is one of the speakers at the She Recovers event in LA this September. I believe it starts the 14th through the 16th. I'm giddy with excitement to see her there, and I hope you go too. It's going to be awesome. It'll be like 600 women in recovery there. 
So with that, please enjoy this episode with the super beautiful and wickedly talented Amy Dresner. Well, Amy, welcome to the ODAT Chat Podcast. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. I am so excited to have you on here. Oh, I listened to your audiobook, My Fair Junkie, and um, I felt like we were hanging out for like a week. <laughs> I love that. It was so, so awesome. fun. It was so <laughs> fun. And I got so caught up in it. And then so I'll put a link in the show notes to your book and stuff. I highly recommend it. It was so good. And we were talking before about some of the words that people use to describe your book and your story. And raw seems to be raw and honest, authentic. These are all words that keep coming up over and over again. Yeah. Um, I saw that you were on the doctor show. You know, they were talking about that too. Okay. And can side note that dude, what's his name? The cute guy, the doctor or whatever. I don't know. (laughs) Oh my God. I I don't know. He's too, he's too like, like, straight looking for me. I don't know. Well, not for he, me. Yeah, I thought he just looked like he was a little scared. <laughs> a scared of me? Yeah, right? <laughs> I was like, hey, I think oh, they shit. all were, except for the older guy on the end. The other doctor thought I was he hilarious. Was chill. Like, uh, yeah, he was, he was chill. chill. I know they were all sort of terrified of me. Well, and it's so funny because the, I don't know if it's because they're just so straight. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they just were like, oh, wow. They were like so deer in the headlights. Like, they hardly knew well, what to do. Also, with you. I mean, they didn't, you know, that was like, I don't know. The backstory that they showed was just only part of the story. And it was very salacious and shocking and meant to sort of get viewers. Yeah. And it wasn't the whole story of like that I got, then I was on the chain gang and I lost everything and I had this, you know, this epiphany. So it was sort of just like, Hey, she's a nymphomaniacal Beverly Hills drug addict who tried to stab someone. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like, well, wait a second, tell the whole story, you know, but wait, there's more. It was like, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was shot live and it was all like white haired grannies in the audience. And you should have seen their faces when they showed that backstory. I was mortified. I was like, Oh my God, I want to die right now. And so I just tried to save myself in the interview as much as possible, you know. Listen, I could tell that, you know, it's different when you're like at a meeting and you're in a room full of your own people, right? Like the energy is different. Like you can see it in their eyes that they get you're kind of crazy. But these people don't have the frame of reference. It's like, oh, yeah, you can be crazy and then you can get help and then you can get better. And then it's actually a good thing because now you can relate to other people and help people like we're uniquely qualified to help other people. Listen, Granny doesn't understand that. She, they're just like, I cannot uh, believe. Awful. Yeah, it was so awful. It was like, it was mortifying. I was just like, yeah. uh, I, I, you I, know, I, I, my heart went out to you. I was like, wow, that looks like the most <laughs> uncomfortable. It was so, <laughs> I was so uncomfortable. I was just like, oh my god. And they had like Nikki Six on the week before, but it's like, it's okay when you're like a famous rock star for whatever reason. Do you know what I mean? A dude, a dude, like, yeah, dudes yeah, are expected oh, yeah. to be like, like yeah, you're, you're when you're a, a woman intravenous drug addict, uh, sex addict, and perpetrator of domestic violence, you know, it's like a whole different ball game. Shame, shame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also coming from like a, like a, you know, a privileged family. Right. All, you know, that, it was just like, oh. It was all bad. Brutal. I, I felt for brutal. you. I was like, that is, I, know. I don't I was, know. 
I know they try. I felt like I was in court the way they dressed me up. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, you had a you had a very conservative uh, gray. That was my neck, I know, but it was because they gave you really strict guidelines about what oh, to really? wear, and then they put your hair up, and it was like, oh yeah, they wouldn't let you be. I would have worn like a rock and roll, like ripped up T-shirt if I could have been myself. Oh yeah, <laughs> they were like, wear a dress. I was like, oh you, hell no. Hell, that was very specific about what they wanted you to wear. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I'll have to. We'll have to talk about the whole run. God forbid that. you should look like yourself. You know. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but I'm. Hey, I'm very lucky to have had that exposure. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, does, it really. So you. A did lot of people whole, bought the book. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So, well, maybe we should back up a little bit. So, usually the way I start out the podcast is sort of asking about your backstory like I feel like we were just discussing earlier um Gabor Maté is a doctor who specializes in addiction and his whole thing is like this all stems out of childhood you know addiction stems Mm -hmm. out of childhood issues and that it's not the only way but I'm always fascinated by family dynamics because I, I heard early in recovery that we recreate our family of origin in our adult life and the oh, purpose God, of that. Right? Yeah, and the purpose of that is that um, as our adult self, we're able to solve problems for like our inner child that we couldn't solve when we were powerless little kids. So, or we just reenact that same thing over and over again, which seems to be what I was I've been doing for a while now. It's yeah. like, oh, are you emotionally unavailable and a workaholic? Okay. I'm like magnetized to you. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Yeah, but there is that idea that a lesson is, re- there are no mistakes, only lessons, and a lesson is repeated until it's learned. Of course, so, of course. I like that idea because it just seems more forgiving. It, You know what I mean? It just seems like, oh, okay, it's not a mistake. There's just more to learn. And then as I am able to incorporate new ideas, then my behavior changes and I don't have to keep doing that. Yep. So... But anyway, I feel like I know your whole story, but let's, let's just, because <laughs> I listened to the audiobook. but let's talk about your story a little bit. So where, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Laurel Canyon area. My parents split when I was two. My father was a screenwriter and my mother was a fashion designer. I'm an only child and they had a very contentious relationship while they were married and while I was growing up and I was sort of shuffled around between them. Yeah, that had to be really hard. So your dad is a professional screen. It sounds like he was a very successful screenwriter. Yeah, he was. Yeah. You know, he was. Yeah, he did TV and movies, and um, he was sort of my main parent. My mother was, you know, trying to scrape together a living as a fashion designer, and she was starting to, you know, hit her forties. It's a very ageist profession, as are a lot of professions, and. Um, my mother's family, you know, her, her mother and her brother were both schizophrenic and she was really, yeah, she was really abused and beaten as a child and neglected. And so, I mean, compared to her upbringing, she did amazing, but I always felt like I couldn't get enough. Like I couldn't get enough of her attention or love, or I felt, you know, very needy. And, you know, there's that saying we're only as needy as our unmet needs. And um, wherein my father was, you know, he has also a very difficult, he had a difficult upbringing. His father was, was a, was a hotel manager and his mother died in childbirth, giving, giving birth to his sister who has cerebral cerebral palsy. And um, yeah, she, um, so my, my father's mother died when he was nine. Really? Wow. 
Yeah. So my father's sort of model to parent was how they parented his sister who was disabled. So my father sort of overly did everything for me as well as the fact that I was like the first woman he ever really loved. Like I opened his heart and I was his child and you know, I'm very much like my dad. Like I'm, you know, I'm really verbal and, you know, and, and then my mother moved to Mexico when I was 13. And so I wasn't, I didn't really have a female role model when I hit puberty. So that's right. the joke. Uh, everyone's like, God, you're so masculine. It's like, well, I'm raised, I was raised by my dad. Yeah. Yeah. Primarily. I mean, you know, so it's like, yeah, I can play basketball and I can play poker and I can, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but I don't, I don't really know how to, you know, cook or any of that you know this reminds me of when I did the when I recorded the book oh you're like in a glass box when you're, you're like in a glass box for like five days at a time and you it's freezing and you can't wear anything that where it scrapes yeah. on anything so you can't wear a jacket and you're <laughs> sitting there like shivering in this chair and if you screw up at all you've got to like go back a couple words and it's basically like being in sort of like a you know like a death chamber where, you know, where it's like a gas chamber. Everyone's just kind of looking at you, yeah. you know. Oh my God, crazy. Okay, um, so, but you were telling me about your mom. So, what made your mom move to Mexico of all places? She'd always felt really, um, she'd actually lived there when I was young, when I was like two. She lived in Guadalajara, Puerto Vallarta felt she her grandmother only spoke Spanish so she's and we're, we're part Spanish so she, oh. she'd always felt very connected to that whole culture your mom's half Mexican yeah so am I that's so funny oh Pena yeah. her whole yes. family's Pena oh very cool okay yeah all right no wonder okay <laughs> <laughs> all right uh -huh. yeah so, okay so she always felt drawn to there so she she went back there um who did she live with she just went there knowing no one, and she started a company where she, interior textile design, and she had the Zapotec Indians weave her rugs and stuff like that. Wow, that's intense. Yeah. My mom's pretty hardcore, yeah. She's like, Your family is very, like, entrepreneurial and achievement-oriented, <laughs> right? Like, your dad yeah, is very, like, yeah, like, successful. Like and they were like, why is your achievement, you know, doing as many drugs as possible and going as many rehabs as possible? They're like, let's, let's change the goal here. Yeah, right. Okay, so you were with your dad most of the time. And did he get remarried while... Oh, yeah. While you guys... A couple oh, times. okay. A couple times. So you had to deal with the whole stepmom. Did you have step-siblings along the way? Mm, but none that I lived with. Oh, Okay. They were mostly grown, and then when he got married the uh, fourth time, she was young, and I was already uh, grown up, so, yeah. Okay, so do you feel like maybe some of your addiction came from, like, your mom's side? Because your dad wasn't a drinker, was yeah, he? Yeah, he is a heavy drinker. Okay, he's dad's a heavy drinker. He's not an alcoholic, but he's a heavy drinker. There's a lot of mental illness on both sides of my family. A lot of depression, a lot of people in psych wards, a lot of people who've killed themselves, Oh, wow. Institutionalized, that kind of stuff. And, you know, even my grandfather had, like, uh, electroconvulsive therapy and was on, like, the first antidepressant in the 50s and then was put back on antidepressants wow. in his 90s. And my father just sort of made it, like, part of his personality. Like, I'm the depressive drinker, writer, you know what I mean? Like, that was right. his whole facade. Um, there's a lot of, yeah. So, and on my mom's 
side, again, there's all that schizophrenia and also depression and um, addiction. My mom was addicted to amphetamines and booze, and my uncle was a speed freak his whole life. Wow. So um, I think it was a combo of genetics and also I just always felt lost. I never felt like I knew how to navigate in the world. I, I felt insecure. I felt different. I felt I wasn't well equipped despite how educated I was. Mm-hmm. My parents sort of hovered over me and were very overprotective. And I think also, and I've talked about this before, when you grow up privileged, you're given everything. So you never have to do anything for yourself. And eventually you don't think you can. You become sort of mm-hmm. crippled. Was that learned, learned dependent? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, because you're always given money, you don't ever, you know, really have have to struggle. No. And so you basically become entitled, but then you're also very fear-based that you can't do anything for yourself because you've never had to. Learned helplessness. Longer that goes on. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what happened. And that's really a big, big part of where that shift happened in my forties when I was left penniless in a psych ward and then went, you know, on medical disability and was facing that court and the divorce and had to make a living for the first time in my life. My dad, my parents were both out of money and it was like, boom, I was out. My trust fund was dead. And it was like, it was just, oh and it was really starting from scratch at my fort. And it was so difficult, but it was so necessary. Yeah. So yeah, we kind of jumped to the end, but when you were like, when did you actually, how old were you when you first had like had your first drink? Was, was it the alcohol like your first? I was ni- I was 19. You were 19 when you had your first drink, or like yeah. your first drunk? Yeah. That's kind of late. Like it's, in high school, you didn't, um, I like was the very kids? Ob- were- no, I was very obsessed with purity. You know, I was <gasps> like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't kiss anyone until I was 18. I didn't lose my virginity until I was 19. I didn't smoke cigarettes. I didn't drink. And my father sort of made a bet with me. He was like, I bet you'll smoke or drink or do drugs before you're 18. And I said, I bet I won't. And he said, I'll bet you a thousand bucks. And I was like, and I make this joke, like that's how Jews raise each other. We just bribe each other. But I was actually afraid of drugs (laughs) and alcohol. I was really afraid. Okay. And I think that. Why were you afraid? I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think deep down I knew I was going to have a problem, but my cover was that it was a cop-out, and I was obsessed with purity, and I think that's very typical for sort of alcoholics and addicts. We're very extremist, you know what I mean? Like, right? Like, you know, people get sober, and it was like, oh, I used to shoot, you know, meth, and now I'm vegan. It's like, you know, that's very normal for, yeah. Haven't you found in your experience that it seems like people with addictive behaviors have, like, this big energy and it just feels like if we don't find a way to focus or channel that energy in some way, we just spin out of control. Oh, my God. I've said that exact same thing <laughs> so many times in shares and in, in podcasts where I'm like, it's like you have the, yeah. the, the, the fastest horse in the race. And if you can keep that, you know, our intensity and our compulsivity and our all of that, our sensitivity, all of that stuff. It's like if you can keep that horse reined, you can accomplish amazing things and win the race. Yes. But if you let loose those reins, you're so fucked. And then you yeah. get you get kicked off the horse and whatever. So yeah, so it was like Serious absolutely. I totally, totally agree with you. Exactly. 
I mean, because a, a lot of the people that are in my circle, they're really smart, but it's it's there is an element of intense energy that needs to be Absolutely. focused on something Absolutely. productive. Yes. Yeah, I feel like we need those healthy boundaries. And then once we're set, then, you know, things are good. But yes. yeah, but I was just never like, like you, probably just not given any kind of coping skills to deal with these big feelings in a healthy way. Do you feel like that was your experience? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had an eating disorder, you know, from 19 to 24. I was or 25. Yeah, I was anorexic and bulimic. That was oh, my first okay. thing. And then I found drugs. Oh, that was your first? Yeah. And I think they're okay. all sort of the same thing. I mean, I make this, you know, and then and then I found drugs and I was like, oh, well, this works better. You know, and I'd been on psych meds this whole time. And then later, as you see, you know, once I get sober I, for the whatever time, you know, going through all that stuff, I develop a sex addiction and I make this, you know, joke. It's like, it's all the same thing. I'm going to put something in my body. I'm going to change my feelings. It doesn't matter if it's a donut or a Xanax or a dick. You know what I mean? It's like, how do I, you know, and I got yeah. into cutting yeah. too. So it was all about oh. how I wanted to control change and feelings. change my feelings. So I read in an article recently, you had, you phrased something very similar to the way I, like I encapsulate my entire experience as if it was in a bottle, a bag or blue jeans, I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I saw in the article that you say something kind of similar. I don't remember. I think someone wrote that about me. Did I say that? I don't know. You wrote something similar, and I was uh, like, oh, my God, I think I met my soul twin. Uh, hi. <laughs> hi. There you are. Yeah, that was, you know, any put anything in my body, anything, you know, it doesn't matter yeah. what shape it is. Totally. Know, yeah, it's a God-shaped hole, not a dick's shaped hole. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's why it was like, I feel it's all connected. I mean, when people get sober, they, you know, they go, you know, a lot of times move towards food or sex or gambling. You know, it's like, how, what's the next way to escape? What's the next way to get dopamine? What's the next way to, and so, um, I went through a lot of those different things and, you know, checked out different programs and that kind of stuff. And now my, my big, my big uh, tool is napping. That's my big thing. So, <laughs> I'm it's serious. How I, much, no, it's amazing how much a nap cares. Right? But let's talk a little bit about, so, you know, in your book, you talk about, you know, you start out at the book with talking about, uh, it sounds like it, I don't know if that was your bottom. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but you had an incident with your now ex-husband and it kind of sent you you know, kicked off this chain of events that led you to dark places and, you know, eventually using heroin. It was heroin, right? No. Mm -mm. Uh, speed or you were using intravenous drugs? That was, that was a flashback. I was oh, already, okay. I'd been sober when I, when I pulled the knife on my now ex-husband. <gasps> you were sober then? Well, I was actually on Oxy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was on Oxy for shoulder injury. I had been sober oh, okay. for a couple of years and I'd relapsed on Oxy for shoulder injury and then started to abuse it. So I was on Oxy and sort of drinking when that happened. Okay. But you and, know, um, yeah, my intravenous Coke days had been prior to that. Oh, I see. And my meth okay. days had been prior to that. I've been sober and relapsed and sober and relapsed for like 20 years and big chunks of sobriety. How, um, how old were you the first time you went to a rehab? 25. And what, what event sort of precipitated that rehab? I was a crystal meth addict and was staying up for days at a time and, you know, then sleeping for days and 
I thought I had bugs in my skin and, you know, all that kind of stuff that we do. And I walked into a market and I woke up in an ambulance and I'd had a seizure. Oh, okay. Yeah. So seizures are part of your, um, well, yeah, now I have, grandma, uh, now I have, I have epilepsy from the crystal meth use. It's been that 15, caused it been 15 years. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. I have hyperactive lesions on my frontal lobe and, but that didn't stop me from shooting cocaine later on. <laughs> so it's instead, amazing. Yeah, how that happens. I was like, well, I don't want to touch meth again, but shooting cocaine, this is a whole other world. <laughs> and That's stuff, totally would, different. Yeah. I would shoot cocaine and I'd have a seizure. And so instead of going, hey, you know, I should stop shooting cocaine, I just shot coke in a bike helmet. In a what? Bike helmet. What does that mean? In a, a, a bike helmet. Oh, like, like you were wearing oh. a bike? <laughs> you would put it on and then yeah. Sh- yeah, so, so that I if you had. My head open. Uh huh. <laughs> Wow, I was like, oh, what? I'm not, I'm not getting what's happening here. Yeah, wow, like, that's well, intense. Coke is a high impact sport. Like, let's wear protective <laughs> gear. Like, I you get it. Protective gear. Holy yeah. shit! I don't mean to laugh at that. You know, if you're in the recovery no, community, it's we, we laugh I mean, at the craziest things. Oh yeah, we things, laugh. Right? At Normies don't laugh. They're like really horrified. But yeah, <laughs> they're horrified. I, yeah, I thought it was brilliant at the time. I was like, this is super smart. <laughs> I'm a genius. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay. And so when you went to your first rehab, um, do they go through the whole like 12 step process or what is, what is your first rehab like? I was 25 and I went to my first rehab as a dual diagnosis rehab and it doesn't exist anymore. And they introduced us to AA, but back then this is, you know, 20, you know, three years ago, you couldn't identify as a drug addict in in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. They would totally flip out. And so I remember going, oh, I'm Amy and I'm a crystal meth addict. And they were like, are you an alcoholic or not? Like people from the meeting, like screaming at me. And I started bawling. And I was like, I just really was put off by the program at that point. Because at that point, I didn't really know I was an alcoholic. That came later. When assholes. But now, I mean, now everyone's, everyone is, is, you know, yeah, yeah. Everyone's co addicted to everything, and every you can talk about drugs, and you know, at least in LA. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because twelve step meetings are different from meeting to meeting. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, and it's and it makes it breaks my heart sometimes because I hear that people when I hear that someone has a bad experience with a group or yeah. a meeting, that they generalize it and they think that that's how it is of at course. all the meetings. Of course. And it makes me so sad. Yeah. So yeah. I want to I want to tell people you know it's it's um, oh yeah it's Their very meetings are very different from yeah from meeting to meeting yeah Absolutely. for sure mm-hmm. you got to find your group you have to find your people yeah, yeah. do you ever go to uh, women's meetings did <laughs> you know I don't <laughs> I don't love women's meetings I got to tell you I don't yeah. love them I don't yeah. I feel weirdly manly I don't love them when. I had a lesbian sponsor and I was basically fucking my way through the program. She made me only go to women's meetings and gay meetings. And, yeah, you know, I, I remember that. I, yeah, and I was I like, well, was... how am I going to get laid doing that? She's like, you not, baby. You're going to concentrate on recovery. And I'm like, well, that sounds boring. <laughs> so I went to women's meetings and gay meetings and um, I got a crush on a girl <laughs> for the first time in my life because who looked like a guy. Because yeah. we just, again, we got to get out of ourselves. 
So love addiction and sex addiction was a big part of the book. Oh, God, yeah. 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 And um, so do you feel like, you know, you go to the gay meetings and then that's just who was there? You just fell in love with this person? I mean, I don't know. She just, she walked in and, I, you know, they were like, she looked, she looked exactly like a man. I mean, exactly. They were like, um, this is a women's meeting. She's like, I am a woman. I was like, hello. You know, and I was like, wait a So we, I was like, wait a second. This might be the best of both worlds. You know, it's like I had, I was like, I haven't been having the, that much luck with men. Like she can fix cars and she eats ice cream and likes Tori Amos songs and talks about feelings, but she looks like a dude. Like, wait a second. So I started watching the L word. I was like, <laughs> you know, I was, and of course she was just like, no, she's like, you're a newcomer and you're crazy and you're straight. And you're not a lesbian. <laughs> yeah, she was like, I'm like, so you're saying I have a chance here, right? You know? She had amazing boundaries. She was just like, no fucking way. She's like, you're a newcomer. I'm not going to violate that. I'm like, just you saying violate. Oh, it makes me so hot. You know, she was like, oh my God, you're so out of your mind. <laughs> so nothing happened. That. And I'm very So straight. you're like, oh, so she's emotionally unavailable. So oh, yeah. So you're okay. like, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. this must be love. Yeah. Yeah. So I got really, <laughs> I totally really obsessed with her and it got really, you know. Yeah. I, so in the book you talk about you had to go to different meetings. Yeah. You could no longer go I to meetings. Yeah. I couldn't see her. I was like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. If you ever date me or marry me, you're basically blocked, you know, and I'll never see you again. That's the way I deal with stuff. I just burn the bridge. <laughs> it's the like, guillotine. Yeah. yeah I'm just familiar. bam. You know? Yep. No going back. It's like You're done. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what they say, crazy in the head, so. good in bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I still I still struggle a lot with that stuff, you know. Now I've been I've taken like I've told you, I've taken a year to really just focus on me and I've been really busy with the book and doing the all the press. Oh god. Ugh, so yeah. So let's back up a little bit a minute. So at the end of the book, so catch me up. So at the end of the book, you are Are we going to ruin relationship- it for everyone? Are we going to ruin it for everyone who does Yes, cuz fuck them. <laughs> this is my time. This is for me. <laughs> I'm a selfish right. alcoholic, you know, whatever. Okay. All right, hit it. This, hit is, it. this is our girl time. So, yeah, the, so the book is amazing. You go through Oh, and by the way, the creepy guy who was having you do things? Oh yeah. Wow, that was intense. That was so yeah, brave. Yeah, program. Seven years. Seven years clean. So here's the thing. Like this so many like... sick motherfuckers in that. Yeah, and it was yeah. like, but the fact that I was going around, going, like, I guess that's kink. I did some not know he was kink. program. I, I guess that's know. some people's kink, but, like, yeah. I just was so, I had the worst self-esteem and the worst boundaries, and I was, like, so not into it, and I just did everything you said until I finally just, like, was like, Matt's what the fuck am now. I doing? Yeah. Yeah, that I realized was that you had you had already been sober and he was programmed. Mm-hmm. Twisted motherfuckers. Yeah, so yeah, twelve step programs are not the hotbed of mental health. True. And so that's why I was asking about women's meetings because I remember when I first got sober, I was this tiny little. I was blonde back then and severely underweight. I was just depressed. Everyone thought I was doing speed or whatever. <laughs> but um, the women would pull me aside and be like. So there are wolves in sheep's clothing at these meetings. And so you need to be very careful. No one did that to me. No one, when I came in, no women told me. 
And it's usually the same dudes that do this, do that. You know what I mean? It's at least yeah. at, at the meetings here. It's the same guys that sort of 13 step all the newcomers. No women yeah. pulled me aside and went, Nobody it's said these that guys. Uh-uh. And so yes. I got, I got 13 stepped a lot. Yeah. So I think that's, if I was going to provide a cautionary tale, your, your example, your story is a perfect example of that. That's why I was asking about women's meetings, because when you go to women's meetings, it's really all about the solution. And, you know, when you take that element of, you know, the sex and love out of the equation, then you can really focus on recovering what's really going on because, but the, that was very frightening to me. And uh, you and I have something similar. Like I didn't have a great relationship with my mom when I was growing up. So I didn't learn how to be a friend. I didn't know how. Oh, to, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know how I to didn't relate like, I didn't, to well, I didn't like women. I didn't like women. And I didn't know how to bond with them till I moved into that women's sober living where I lived for two and a half years where I, I'd always had, you know, some close female friends, but in general, I didn't like groups of women. And, you know, um, I go to meeting, I go to mixed meetings, but I go to mixed meetings where we all know each other. It's really safe, safe and it's ones. very program based. It's very solution based and it's not like a, it's not a meat market at all, you know? I'm but, sure you know, there's plenty of those out there now. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I mean, I don't know. Then after having dated a normie, I'm like, well, they're just as crazy as people in the program. I'm like, well, I don't, am I going to marry the, my Colonel Puff Puff? Like, I don't know. Like, I well, I mean, you can still have mental illness without the element of addiction. Of course, you know, and everyone's got issues. And it's like, Everyone, again, yeah. you know, I'm, it's like, who am I attracted to? And, you know. Yeah. And, and we were talking before about how we attract at the level of our self-esteem, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, and it sounds like you've done just a ton of work though. So you get, you, you've gone through multiple rehabs and you've had extended periods of time and you've done a combination of therapy and 12 steps. Oh God, I was, I've been in therapy since I was like 13. Yeah. I don't, so do you feel like, um, and I was in, you know, I was diagnosed as borderline. So I was in dialectical behavioral therapy and I've been in, you know, psychoanalysis and I've been in, you know, every type of therapy. I've had body work, I've had rolfing, I've had, you know, biofeedback, I've had exorcisms, I've had shamans, I've had, you know what I mean? I've done everything. I've done everything. I did everything because I didn't want to work the steps and I was creeped out by AA. Yeah. But what do you, what do you, what do you feel has been the most helpful? Like, has it been helpful to really dig into the 12 steps with the Yes. I think the fourth step was, was life changing for me at least mm -hmm. this time around really. Cause I was really ready to look at it and I was like, Oh, I'm not who I think I am. Holy shit. You know, and oh. I saw myself the way that other people saw me. And I also, I felt, you know, empowered because I was like, first I felt ashamed. And then I was like, wait a second, if I change, maybe everything will change. And that's exactly what happens. You change and your whole life changes. But, yeah. you know, so it's like, for sure, the 12 steps, I needed a manual on how to interact in the world. Right. So, yeah. And I needed someone to go to with my terrible ideas and say, hey, you know, because I can be very impulsive and very reactive and stuff like that. But and I will tell you, honestly, you know, sweeping the streets, you know, for having been a, been uh, convicted, it was I was basically I was charged with a felony and then it got dropped into a misdemeanor and I had 240 hours of community labor and I was sweeping the streets 
was made of LA. Of, yeah, of yeah, of Hollywood. Yeah, like wow, like syringes and human feces and, and whippets and diapers and cigarette butts and that was fucking life changing. Two hundred and forty hours. Hours. Did it have to be? Was it just weekends or it was every oh, day? No, it be, you you got to decide, but you had to have it done by the you had you were given a. A you know, like a date, time. a date when you had to have it finished by. So you could figure out when you wanted to do it. But um, that, I think, really shifted me in a way that nothing else had shifted me. Why? It, it, it was, first of all, it was so humbling. It was humbling? Okay. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a Jap from Beverly Hills with maids, grew up with maids. You did? Did you go to what, high school? Did I you go to? Westlake. Westlake? Yeah, an all-girls private uniform school in Bel Air with like all, all girls, celebrity kids. Yes. So here I am, you know, and I walk up there and I'm just like very entitled. And I'd had a trust fund and then I married this rich guy. And then all of a sudden I'm like dropped on my ass and, you know, in medical dis- on medical disability in a shared room for two and a half years in a sober living. And I'm sweeping the streets. I walk up and I'm thinking like, oh, my God, like I don't belong here. And I had more time than anyone else, and I was one of the very few people there for assault. So it was like me and like 40 Mexican guys there for DUIs, and there I am for, for assault. And I had, I had more time than anyone else. They're like, would you rob wow, a fucking crazy. bank? Like, Jesus Christ. And yeah, yeah. And it was just, you know, no one talked to us. People were like, you're criminals. We wore a uniform, and no, no, no people talked to us except for like drunk homeless people. And if you like, so was it during the day yeah, was with seven, like people we had to be there walking at seven around? In the morning like, and we were released at three thirty in oh, the sun, like nonstop day. sweeping. You know, it was yeah. The princess bullshit got knocked out of me pretty quickly, and it was really, really, really humbling. Oh, okay. And I got a work ethic, and I took responsibility for my actions, and it made me realize like I'm not special and anything you think you're so different. Like that could never happen to me. I could never be arrested or I could never, you know, do that. Or I could never be in the psych ward and like everything that I thought could never happen to me happened to me. And I think that that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was like, here I am coming from this privileged background and like all the gnarly shit that I had judged happened to me. You know, where I'd been like, oh, my God, like, like my bail was 50 grand. (laughs) Wow. What's normal? I'm sorry. What's normal bail? I've never been arrested before. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of fucking money. 50 grand? 10% of that. And you have to show up in court. And it was just the whole thing was just incredible. Yeah. Really. Super humbling. Really, really humbling. And I had no money and I had to really, you know, uh, learn to support myself. And it was just like my whole life was flipped upside down. It was a fish out of water for sure. I was wonder. I was wondering about that, about the whole money thing, right? Because I was like, I was very, as a, as a listener, I was listening to this. <laughs> like I was stressed out for you. I was like, oh my God, how is she going to, how is she paying her bills now? Because you talked a little bit about school, but I didn't hear anything about you didn't talk. You didn't have like a lot of career no, stuff going on. Drug addict. Like, I, I mean, I graduated magna about... cum laude from college, and then I went to Where'd I you went to, to Santa Cruz for my first year, and then I transferred and went to Emerson. Okay, so you you graduate. You're obviously yeah, really smart. Yeah, and then I just 
kind of, you know, didn't, I sort of just was like, you know, I moved back to LA and I was like, I'll be an actress like every other Hollywood kid. And then I realized very quickly, I, I could not be anyone but myself. Oh. I was like, oh, and then, so I just, I, you know, I, I just, for the next, you know, basically 15, almost 20 years, I was just, you know, going in and out of rehabs and I was very uh, struggling with a lot of depression and a lot of drug use. And I did, I was sober for seven years or dry for seven years without the program. And I lived in Paris and London and I had a fashion line, blah, blah, blah. But, um, that was like a whole other thing, but I was, my life was really small and I didn't really change. And then I just, I did not know how to live a life. Yeah. How Uh, did you support, how did you, when did you start supporting yourself? Did you start supporting yourself with your writing? Because you're a really good writer. Did you start writing for The Fix then? Or when did you start? Um, let's see. Yeah. I mean, I, I started writing for The Fix in 2012. So I got married in 2008. And I guess, yeah, we, and we, and the, the, Pulled a knife on him in 2011, so I started writing for the Fix in 2012. Really? And prior to that, I was a comic. I was a comic for like five years. Oh wow! You know, that must have been. How did you get to be a comic? But, like, what possessed you? You're just a very always. I was, well, I was so cuckoo, and I'd be in meetings, and I was just telling my story and sharing, and people were falling over laughing. And a couple comics, professional comics, came up to me, and they were like you should really think about being a stand-up. They're like, you're hilarious. And so I took a class and I started doing stand-up and I went on a, I ended up on a sober tour all over and I was like performing all over and I did that five years. And then when, you know, when I got arrested and, and then when I got arrested and sort of like really relapsed pretty hard, sort of everything came crashing down. And I was like, I need to focus on putting my life together and not telling dick jokes. (laughs) on stage (laughs) on stage I'm sure you do plenty of that at meetings though (laughs) so that was that but I just you know I've you know I've been chronicling sort of my my depression and my drug use this whole time okay and you on my computer so when it came time to write the book I didn't have to recreate all the dialogue I had been basically chronicling it I knew I wanted to write a book I had three you know half finished books on my computer oh wow so you've been writing the whole time, yeah. Yeah, I was writing when I was on Crystal. I was writing when I was on Coke. I was writing when I was in England, Whoa. when I tried to kill myself. Like, so I had all these details of exactly what was going on at the time. Plus, I was writing a lot during the fix, which was sort of, you know. Up and down. Chronically, you know, yeah. My, you know, oh, look, I just, you know, slipped my wrist, and now I'm in the psych ward, and that's what this is like, and blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah, that's uh, that's intense. No, it's. It's amazing how therapeutic writing can be. And I think if you have this ability to write and journal and things like that, it can be really um, helpful as you're applying that to the 12 steps because the 12 steps are really like largely a writing process. I mean, I didn't really find, to me, it was always separate. You know what I mean? I mean, my writing for my step work is very different from my writing for magazines or, or for the book. I mean, what's been, the book was extremely painful to write. It was really, really, really hard to go back into that place of active addiction. Mm. And also, 
I, I didn't recognize the person I was writing about a lot. Oh, wow. I was like, I was like, who, why don't do that? You know, why are you doing that? Stop. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, who is she? Why is she doing that? What like, were the things that you did that were making you say things that like that to yourself? Like when you were act, like when you were doing drugs or acting out. Yeah, this is, well, the sex addiction stuff was really, really hard to write. Was that it? was to me. I mean, there's still a certain rock and roll cool about being a drug addict, but being there's nothing cool about being a sex addict, especially a female. And it was there was stuff where I was like, I don't want to put this on the page. Mm-hmm. This is mortifying. Yeah, I was really like, rough. and I know as a writer. I was. I know as a writer that that's the stuff you have to put. Exactly the stuff that you don't want to write. Say. Exactly. Yeah, because that's the stuff that people that someone's going to go. Oh my God, I identify. Thank you. Like, if you're trying to look good in an addiction memoir, like you're not being honest enough. Like, let's be, right. Yeah, let's be real. And I mean, Jerry Stahl, who blurred my book, who's a friend of mine and sort of my icon, who wrote Permanent Midnight. You know, his quote was like. If you had the nerve to live what you lived, you should have the nerve to write it. Mm. And I was like, all right, I here love we go. That. I love that. Yeah, and that was the thing. You know, we were maybe we can talk a little bit about anonymity, too, because, you know, doing the podcast, I was struggling with whether I should do this or not or talk about my 12-step experience. But the truth of the matter is, is like when I was drinking, I wasn't anonymous about my drinking. So why should I be anonymous about my recovery? You know what I mean? It's interesting, too, because you have a lot of time, and it's people usually with a lot of time that are very, very sort of adamant about 11th tradition. Yeah, I just don't, I just don't agree. I just don't agree because here, the thing is, is I don't like the whole stigma about being in recovery. Like there's, I agree with you. There's a stigma about addiction, but there's also a stigma about recovery. And I think we... My platform is about education, right? It's about education Mm -hmm. to the masses, but also there's many forms of recovery. And at the end of the day, Amy, it doesn't matter what the problem is. The solution is the same. Everyone's so hung up on, was it a sex addiction, gambling? It it doesn't, none of that matters. Well, that was, I say that in the, I say that in the book. I mean, you know, I went to SLAW and I went to SA and I went to other programs um, and it's the same stuff. For people who don't know. Law is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, and SAA is Sex Addicts Anonymous, and, you know, it's the same, basically the kind of the same steps, and my sponsor was just like, hey, you know, if you do the steps, all that other shit will fall away. That's all part of your mm-hmm. alcoholism, Amy. It's not separate. It's just it's an just arm of it. You know down. what I mean? And I just, I, I recently put down nicotine, too. And I didn't go to Nicotine Anonymous. I just cold turkeyed. And I mean, I knew I was using you quit it to smoking? numb myself. And um, I quit vaping. I, I started smoking and vaping when uh, I went through oh, that breakup okay. last Do year. Do we want to talk a little tiny bit about it? <laughs> well, yeah, so. Fine. I mean, you know, the book and happy ending you're in was, a relationship. You know, was me the sunset with Bradley and in April of last year he dumped yeah, me and I think moved he out. Did you a favor to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, kind of So fell let's apart. talk about that because a lot of a lot of uh, uh-huh. this is what I wanted to ask you about is specifically when because breakups are so painful in oh, recovery so that painful. it's important for people to, since you've been through it, it's like, how did you survive it? And what did you learn from it? I wrote a piece called my 
first sober heartbreak for the fix and it's people should look it up it's really I'll put a link sad. To it and show us it. what did it what did, was it called yeah, again my my first I think it's called my first sober heartbreak okay something like that I'll send it to you and okay. it's so so I mean people just you know my agent was like god it's so beautifully written but it's really sad and it mm. captures exactly like the heartbreak feeling yeah um the loneliness and despair that people oh, go through. Oh, and the through. abandonment and the self-esteem yeah. and the grief and, you know, especially when someone's living with you and you come home, you know, and, you know, there's an empty closet and it's oh, like... Oh, the empty on, closet. You know, and you're sleeping like on, you know, your half of the bed for the next, you know, year and just, it's brutal. It's brutal. So, of course, most of my breakups made me either try and kill myself or, or I relapsed. Right. And... And neither you know, of those things happened this time. No. I mean, they were my first thought. Mm-hmm. Of course. But that's the thing like, is yeah. the thought comes and then, right. and then what did yeah. you do? What was, what, how did you handle it? So I felt my, I felt my feelings, which is what we hate doing. You know, I was like, plenty of people get their heart broken, Amy, and not everyone slits their wrists or puts a needle in their arm. So let's grow the fuck up and, you know. And I felt my feelings. I lost 15 pounds. And I mean, I looked so ill. And I'm still trying to put that weight back on. And I started smoking cigarettes again. And I started, then I switched to vaping. And I cried and cried and cried and cried yeah. and cried. And I just kept going to meetings and stayed close with my friends and just believed that I would get through it. And it was the most painful thing I've ever been through right. worse than my yeah. divorce so so painful because yeah. I was so in love with him I was so and it wasn't my choice and it seemed sort of out of nowhere the other thing too was I it was like six months prior to my book being released so I didn't feel like I could like write an addiction memoir oh before the release and then relapse before it came out can you imagine? You know what I mean? Like, they'd be like, well, So do you feel, you know, that's one of those yeah. things that you can't plan for. And it's like a coincidence God thing. You know, is it odd or is it God? Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, I had a, a certain amount of accountability, I felt, to the readers and to my publisher and to my agent. And I just thought, God, how embarrassing. Like, you know, they'd be like, well, Amy can't be here, but she can Skype. She's Skyping in from her eighth rehab. Uh -huh. Hi, Amy, you know, tell us about your, you know, and I just thought, this is a book about hope and recovery. And I just thought, you can't let people fucking down, Amy. Interesting. Okay. So. But I, mean, I did take him out of the acknowledgments and, and mm. the bio and all yeah, that of course. stuff. And, you know, I don't, I don't think the happy ending is him. I think the happy ending is that I was sober. And I think the even happier ending is that I've stayed sober. I yeah, have five and a half and years now. I think the... And life happens, you know? Yeah. Breakups happen. It's like, that's part of life. Yes, but it's how you responded to it that I think is really interesting, right? Because it brings up a lot of stuff for you to look at. It made you go back to, as you were saying earlier, kind of went back to you, like your childhood, like abandonment mm -hmm. that you experienced from your from your mom or from your dad people mm -hmm. that are like emotionally unavailable for whatever reason even if it's justified you know there's that saying that your parents did the best they could i heard this one guy say yes and it wasn't good enough right Oof. Oof. it wasn't good enough because it left me feeling neat like i had needs that went unmet 
And then I, t I totally identified with that because I was, you know, very similar to you in the sense that I was attracted to people who were emotionally unavailable. Yeah. And in recovery, I learned it was because I couldn't face somebody who was willing to see me for who I was because I couldn't accept who I was. But uh, over time, as my self-esteem has improved and I've allowed myself to receive better things, you know, my relationships improve too. And it was... Yeah, I mean, I, I think what it taught me was, I mean, that was the best relationship I've had to date. Was the, It was certainly one of the sweeter. I and mean, we, you know, that relationship continued on past the end of the book and we lived together and all that kind of stuff. But there were certainly signs very early on that he had issues mm -hmm. and was frightened of commitment. And, you know, I think as a lot, like a lot of women, I had that Svengali thing, like, I'm going to change him. Like, I'm special. Like, you haven't met anyone as special and witty. And <laughs> I have a magical pussy and I'm going to change your mind, you know? And it's right. like, so, I mean, I will never do that again. I mean, right. you know, if someone says, you know, it's, it's that Maya Angelou quote, you know, when someone shows you who they are, fucking believe them the first time. Yeah, believe them. You know, them. and he told me, he was like, hey, I'm terrified of relationships and marriage. And I should have been like, see ya, not, you know. But do you feel change. like you learned something from it? Even though it was super painful, it's like you wouldn't be who you are now had you not. I was a great that. partner. I was an amazing fucking partner. Yeah. And even he would say that. We don't speak. And he would, he even said, you're the best girlfriend I've ever had. I, that was a living amends to my ex-husband. Um, I was a terrific partner. I was, you know, loving and nurturing and maternal. And, um, I really, really opened myself up. And, and so now uh, you know that, that, you have that capacity. Yeah. To be, and that, that's cool. Yeah. And now I know I can be a great partner. I didn't know that before. Yeah. Now I'm like, I, I am, you know, it's like you, I need someone who can bring it to the table because I can be an awesome partner yeah. and I won't accept anything less. And so it's like, so, so this year has been about healing and, healing. you know, there's been people that I've been interested in, but you know, as soon as I see a red flag, I'm like out of here, you know? Yeah. And also it's been a lot of promotion in the book and, I've gotten a lot of love from people who've read the book and the messages they send me are so just great. I mean, they're just like, you say, you, you gave me the willingness to save my own life or you made me feel less broken and less alone. And I can't thank you enough. I mean, I'm sorry to cry. Oh, just, no. Those messages, those messages move me so much. And that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book that honestly to help other people. And even people who aren't addicts say, God, I understand it now. I understand yeah. my brother's addiction better yeah. or my mom's. And I, you, you let me have a conversation I could never have. And, you know, even I told you, I, I, I got a message this morning from a parole officer. And he was just like, holy shit. Like, I've been a parole officer for, you know, a, you know two decades. And your book is so fucking stark accurate and on point and incredible about addiction I'm just and I'm just like wow and that's why like fuck looking good you know what I mean yeah yeah no I totally you know, get it it's like, that's I mean the sex addiction stuff was super super mortifying but I know that everyone's had that experience where they've done something they didn't want to do Absolutely. because they felt pressured or felt the person was going to be angry or didn't have the self-esteem to say no or were lonely or yeah. whatever, whether they it's the extreme that I did or not, 
you know, to me, my book is really about feelings. It's about yeah. self-hatred and loneliness and self-destruction and wanting to bond and, you know, all of those kind of things. And it's like, so I don't think it's, I didn't want it to be a book just for addicts. Right. You know? Well, and you just said it, right? It's this, um, this, we, everybody has like this intense need to bond, right? And to get yeah. connected at the heart. And I think you have a wonderful capacity to be honest and share from your heart. And there's just something about that energy that makes me feel like, you know what? Me too. I totally get it. You know, it's like in the rooms of recovery, we find a new normal. Like your yeah. normal, my normal is different than people who have never experienced anything like this. And we need to know that we're not alone and that we're connected. Yes. And yes. But also that there's hope for us, hope for like a better, a better future, or even just the next best thing. I feel like every relationship picks up where the last one left off. And, you know, as painful as this is, sometimes I like to think of it as growing pains. Right. And that, you know, you did this growth and then you don't have to do this again. Right. Yeah. Like the next time you're when you're ready, like it's, you said, you've been out of relationships for a year, which is huge. It's such a huge gift for you to give yourself because you will be a totally different person than than you were a year ago or in that last relationship. So when the next person that comes in, you're like totally different. Well, I'm so. not needy now. I mean, this is the first time I haven't jumped from one thing to another. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Where I just totally sat different. with myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? I really just sat with myself. And, you know, I'm a little worried about the celibacy maybe being sort of the sexual anorexia component of the sex addiction. Do you know what I mean? It's like I've been on blocks. the less destructive of the two. You know, yeah, but it's also like I've been on blocks now for a year and it's like, <laughs> it's like. Been on blocks? You know, I've been on blocks. Up on blocks. Someone said that to me. They're like, you've been up on blocks for a year. Like you haven't been. Oh, like you, know, you put a car, like a commission? Like, yeah. <laughs> like a car, okay. You've been out of commission like, for a year. No, I mean, at this point now, I'm a little bit frightened. I'm a little gun shy. I got hurt so badly in this past relationship. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm of a little bit frightened. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so, listen, but when I in also doubt, been don't, right? on my career, you know, it's been a lot of book promotion. Like I told you, you know, we're negotiating a series deal. I focused a lot on my program. I've been focusing on getting my body back. I really, really kind of got to a terrifyingly low weight. So you're nourishing and your body. So, yeah. So spirit. I started working out. I stopped vaping. You know, I've got a trainer. I'm eating. I'm like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, that's really good self care. I know, but it's like, and I'm okay with it. And I'm watching, you know, it's like, I don't. With, we were talking about before, you know, my mom's fallen ill. We were talking oh, about yeah, that before. Oh, yeah, let's talk about your mom a little bit. So, How old is your mom now? 80. She's 80. And uh, tell me what's going on with her health. She broke in a hip a couple, like, oh, God, 10 years ago. And then she broke her other hip oh, recently. And, you know, when you break a big bone, I don't know if you know that, there's like, I, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but there's some fatty stuff inside the bone that, so she had like a mild heart attack and a pulmonary embolism as well. Whoa. And so, yeah. So I went to Santa Fe and now she's, you know, after a bunch of months, she's wheelchair bound and she's starting to lose her memory. So I've become power of attorney and I'm in charge of all of her, her finances. And 
I can't even do my own finances. So this has been like big girl panties fucking like instantly. I'm an only child and it's like, holy shit, you know? And so it's been very stressful. Yeah. And as I told you, you know, when it first happened and, you know, she was like, well, you know, and I had to handle everything and find her a place and deal with the bills and, you know, become power of attorney and sign on to her bank and sign under this and sign. I, my first thought again, which is old thinking is like, if I put a needle on my neck, I'm not responsible and I'll be the broken one. Right. And, you know, and I just thought those days are over, bitch. Like, get it? No. You know what I mean? Like, no, 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 no. Like, this is your chance to get back and be there for her Mm -hmm. for all those times that she was there for you. And it's like, she needs you now. But it's been very, very, very stressful. And then my father recently said to me, he's 81, I guess, and he's, but he's in great health. And he said, you know, I'm just paring down and, you know, getting ready. And I just said, are you sick? And he said, Paring no, down no. and getting ready? What does that yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah, just like, he's like selling Downsizing. stuff. And, yeah, and I was like, are you Preparing sick? for something? Yeah, and he was like, no, I'm just being responsible so you don't have to deal with what you dealt with with your mom because I had to go to... Santa Fe and put all her shit in storage and all that stuff. And, but that instantly triggered my fear of abandonment, my fear of secure financial security. And I was like, I gotta have a mate. Like I gotta be married. I gotta have a boyfriend. I gotta have a mate. Like Mm -hmm. I gotta, you know, I felt terrified, terrified of being like alone and poor for the rest of my life. It just triggered all of that. Right. You know, and there's uh, my best friends are a lesbian couple that live upstairs. And they're like, you're part of our family. <laughs> it's oh, like, sweet. It sounds like you've surrounded yourself with some really great people. Yeah, I have amazing people in my life. Yeah. And so it sounds like you're getting a lot of help. But um, how are you dealing with the stress? Do you, I, I know when I've, like, I have an older, an you know, aging older father, too. And it just, it does help to talk about it. Do you have, you have people to talk about this stuff with? Like, Yeah, I do. I do. Because, you know, unfortunately, dementia and Alzheimer's and all that stuff, although she's, you know, not even, you know, just the beginning of it's just like some forgetfulness um, is very common. It's terrifyingly common. And so a lot of my friends that either their grandmother went through it or their parent went through it. And so I have people to talk to about it. But I, you know, I feel a little bit like I've lost a parent and gained a child and gained a child. Yeah. And you don't, you don't have I'm, any children? No. Yeah, so. I think, I think the universe was like, we're going to make you barren because we're not going to pass on all these crazy genes. Thank you very much. You can live through your book. <laughs> was that a conscious choice, like that you didn't have kids? Or it's just the way life? I got was... pregnant in my, in my 40s and I miscarried right away. In your um, 40s? I know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I've never really been, I just... It wasn't a conscious choice. It wasn't an unconscious. It just never happened. It just Yeah, it wasn't something that you really went after. No. Yeah. And and I didn't really feel that maternal vibe until I took care of that child. I know, in, in the book. So, yeah, tell that story a little <laughs> bit because I thought that was so, so, such a sweet story. Okay, so basically I'm like this, you know, violent drug addict in this sober living with all of these moms and the 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 house manager had a baby. It was her house too. It was a very small sober living. It was a very close knit group of us. 
And it was her first baby. And it was like probably two in the morning. And she was just like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. Like this baby will not stop crying. And she went to all the moms. There was a couple of moms that lived there. One had three kids. One had one kid. You know what I mean? And she went to all of them and said, please help. And they all did their sort of tricks of the trade, their right? Mom the tricks. Kids, they're, yeah, they're, the baby would not stop crying. And then she comes into my room and she goes, you're up. And I was like, are you out of your mind? Like, I've had, you know, I've never had a child. Like, you're crazy. Like, and she goes, please, please. Everyone's tried everything and no one, not, you know, nothing's working. Just try something. I just, I don't know what to do. And I was just like, I grabbed this like, like little baby with the little, you know, windmilling feet. And I was like, ah, and I was like, I don't know. Little sack you know? of potatoes. Yeah. And I just threw her over my shoulder and I remembered my mom did something called a ruru. You probably know what that is, right? Yeah, 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 so yeah. So when I was a baby and so I just started walking around the house and I was like, and the kid passed out in like, Amazing. like in a minute. And everyone was like, what the fuck? So mad at you. Yeah, they were like, <laughs> you're the fucking baby whisperer, like you, you know? And um, I ended up being that kid's nanny for the next year. That na- that kid was strapped to me like a bomb. I had that fucking baby Bjorn, yes. like that backpack and I had her wore her on me and like- You wore that shit like a badge of honor? Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, pushed her around in a carriage, and it was like I was basically Aww. doing that, writing for the fix and sweeping the streets. That was that year. Uh, what an intense year! And it changed. Like you me. couldn't have. And it, yeah, it totally changed me. Though it was amazing. I mean, I had a connection with that kid, and I got to see. I that was my chance to really see me as being maternal and nurturing, which set me up to be maternal and nurturing in this past relationship and so I know that it's in me you know and I use that with my friends and I use that with my sponsees and it brought out a really soft side of me yeah and it feels like that nurturing like when we're allowed to express that nurturing caring aspect of ourselves it is self-healing oh right yeah. it's like whatever you give you get you it's like that law of karma it's like whatever you give you get it right back yeah and when you have this little helpless baby you know if you can love that baby with your whole heart it's so healing yeah and it's like you know it's very much being the doctor not the patient which is what we need to do in in the program it's like how do I how how do I be the doctor and not the patient here and um it was just yeah it was it it was really life-changing and it's also taught me how to be sweeter with myself absolutely you know how to self-soothe which I wasn't ever really good at, you know, my self-soothing consisted of, you know, a needle or, you know, cutting or, you know, fucking some loser on Tinder. I didn't know how to self-soothe. I'd get an uncomfortable feeling. And now I have better tools on how to self-soothe. Okay, let's get a massage. Let's take a nap. It's going to be okay. Like, you know. Yeah, self-soothing. That's interesting. And it's so funny, like some people when they get sober, they think, oh my God, I'm never going to have any fun. And, and I don't think we talk about that enough. It's like, what do you, what do we, what do you do for fun these days? Ugh. Well, right now I've been so busy. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like I was like saying the other day, complaining, I was like, my life is programming the book and I don't have any fun. So this you're asking the wrong time. If you, in a perfect world, if you could, what would you, what I mean, would you do I just for like fun? Watching, I mean, I, you know, I, I laugh with my friends. I mean, to me, that's fun. We laugh that's our asses off. You know what I mean? It's like, 
Walk do you, surra- do you surround yourself yeah. with funny people? Yeah. Well, all my friends are comics, so it's like they're hilarious, you know, and I just, yeah, I could be alone. I, did, I couldn't, I didn't used to be able to be alone, you know, I mean, I'm sort of, and I just, yeah, good food and watching a video and, you know, working out and going to meetings and, you know, we laugh a lot in meetings, at least, you know, sure I secretary meeting and we laugh our asses off. Nice. So, so how do you, how do you do, so you're still going to meetings? Yeah. So I usually, we're getting close to uh, wrapping up our time and I usually end with my wrap up questions are around, you know, what do you, what do you, how do you stay sober one day at a time, mm-hmm. right? Do you have like a, a daily routine or a weekly routine? So it sounds like you're, you're do, you're still in service and you still go to meetings, but um, do you have like a weekly routine or a daily routine to help you stay sober? Um, you know, I just, I'm really connected to people in the program. I secretary a meeting. I go to meetings. I call my sponsor every day. I still do every my, day. yeah. Cause he got on my ass cause I stopped doing it. And he was like, I'm going to cut people loose and you're going to be one of them unless you get back on the ball. I was like, okay. So you have a boy sponsor. I have a man sponsor. Yeah. A man sponsor. Okay. And most, uh, and most controversial <laughs> and most I've written pieces about it. Um, again, you know, it's not unheard of, it's but it's in, not common. It, no. He's a much older man. Most of the women that he sponsors are uh, – most of the people he sponsors are women. I have had bad experiences with male sponsors in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm, like one of them fucked me during a relapse. I'll just say that. So, um, But again, because I am so connected to my dad, I can hear men better. Yeah. So I'm more – I've had female sponsors. They don't really haven't really worked out that well, except for the lesbian one mm-hmm. <laughs> we had for three and a half years. But again, I think that that's where we get caught up in stuff. It's like if everyone has a clean boundary, then who gives a shit? Yeah. I, I, no, there's plenty of you know. It's male like when, when yeah, like when when AA first started, all women were sponsored by men. So again, mm-hmm. it's one alcoholic talking to another. And it's like, can you be right. honest with this person and tell them everything? Do you feel safe? That's what it's about. And yeah, this person, as long as they have integrity. Yeah, I I wanted what this person had. He had been married for, you know, a gazil- he had he has God, 20, 30 years of sobriety. He'd been married for forty something years. Wow. He was incredibly compassionate and. Yeah, and most of his sponsees are women, and for a reason, because there's a, he has a really a gentleness about him, and so it works for me. Oh, sweet! He's like a fatherly. He's a type. hospice nurse. Is he really? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that so, takes a special kind of person. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, again, I don't, you know, I am controversial in terms of that stuff. You know, I've written a lot of pieces that are very controversial, even now, you know, with this movement towards, you know, substance use disorder instead of using the word junkie and stuff. And I just, you know, again, I, I just feel like, you know, we breaking an 11th tradition. I'm very much, mm-hmm. I'm not anonymous. I haven't been, I wasn't anonymous in the book. I'm not anonymous when I speak. I'm not anonymous uh, in my articles. I think 11th tradition is super outdated. And I think if people's if we break, we cannot break the stigma of addiction unless we break the stigma of recovery. And it's like, I think that people, you know, a lot of people think 12 step groups are creepy and cult like and Christian based. And I'm a Jew. And it's like, there are plenty of atheists and you get to make your own higher power. And Hey, I don't say the Lord's prayer because it feels creepy to me. 
And it's like, you can make it your own. And I think that 12 step, I think that AA is really cognitive behavioral therapy and there's an incredible amount of fellowship and I just, we need that. And so I just, I think that talking about it brings people in and allows them to talk about their fear. I think a lot of people don't go to meetings because of what they think it's going to be like. And now with celebrity rehab and sober house and it's in, you know, in love, she goes to meetings. It's everywhere. Like let's catch up with the times, you know, and the whole idea that, Oh, well, you know, if you relapse and you say you're in AA, then it makes AA look like it doesn't work. Guess what? It doesn't always fucking work for everybody. You know, that's why there is smart recovery and refuge recovery and different and and harm reduction. It's one way to get sober. And if it works for you, great. I am not a fundamentalist, but it's like, like I told you before, if you get cancer and you have chemotherapy and you still die, do people think chemotherapy doesn't work? No, they don't. So I'm more about being open and honest than I am about protecting AA. I'm a representative of me. Yes, it's given me my life back and I think the tools are amazing but I'm not going to let it dictate what I can and cannot say. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree, Hunter. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm obviously uh, <laughs> doing this podcast and breaking all the rules myself, but and it was it's actually really scary, right? Because I have some standing in my community and I was afraid of what people were going to say. But I mean, you know what I was more afraid of? I was more afraid of not speaking the there truth. You go. Was on my there you heart. go. There you go. That's what I was more afraid of. And so, and I'm so grateful to you for writing the book. I feel like it's, um, I'll leave uh, links to it in the show notes. And girl, I am cheering you on. Um, I hope you get that book deal. And I'm super excited to see you you in September. Oh, the series deal. Yeah, the series (laughs) deal. But I'm also super excited to see you in LA. And she recovers. You're going to be speaking. So tell me a little bit about that. Um, I'm, I'm going to see you there. I'm going. And they asked me and I'm kind of terrified. I mean, like, yeah. you know, I had dinner with them and I'm like, are you, did you read the book? And they're like, yeah, because it's like, <laughs> it's a lot of big shots. It's Janet Mock and Cheryl Strayed and they've had Miriam Williams. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, and Tara you know. Laura is going to be speaking. I'm super excited about that too. She wrote Playing Big. Have you read that? No. And I'm like, if you haven't read it, I, I do everything on audiobook. So I'm listening to her audiobook. It's so I'm good. Totally freaked out. And I'm like, have you read my book? You know, I'm like, do you realize that I swear like a sailor and like I dress like a homeless lesbian? And I'm like, they're like, we want you to be you. I'm like, you want a little Iggy Pop in in with all that namaste? Okay. You know, so they're like, I guess I'm supposed to be hosting the gala part, you know? And I'm like, oh, my God. And I don't, I hate wearing dresses. And I'm like, I don't want to wear. You're going to be so good. I I don't want to wear a dress. They're like, wear a pantsuit. Be you. Like, they're like, just talk for 20 minutes and be you. And um, hopefully the paperback will be out by then. And um, I'll be signing books. And a lot of people are really excited to meet me. And so it's, I feel incredibly honored that they asked me. I mean, incredibly honored you know, yeah. well, you did the brave thing, you know, you did the brave thing and you told the truth. You know what I mean? And you were brave enough to be who you authentically are, which really cuts through the bullshit. And it goes that your message goes straight to the heart. I just don't know how to do anything else. I mean, maybe it's brain damage. I don't know. (laughs) Like all the features, 
it's like I don't know how to like do what I well it's kind of funny you know yeah you're the comedian right it's like you grew accustomed to speaking the uncomfortable right that's like the comedian's job is to call out the truth I just I, I guess so I mean I just I've always been that person it's like you know I say the thing that everyone's thinking that no one dares say it's like who cares you know, that was my, that's, that's, that's my whole thing. And like in AA meetings, it's like, oh, you know, be queen of the drunks. Like who gives a shit? Yeah. I don't want that. Like, job. I just don't, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't care. I don't care. You know, I've yeah. relapsed so many times. I don't care. And it's like, yeah. So I'm, yeah. Uh, meaning that you don't, you no longer have that shame. No, which I, don't, is I mean, we're, amazing. You know, yeah, I'm not in competition with anyone. It's like, you don't like me. That's fine. It's like, I yeah. just, you know, I really, people are like, your book's so raw. I'm like, I don't, is it? Okay. Should I've cooked, should I've cooked it more? Like, I don't. I just, no, no. no I, I guess that's just my style. I don't go, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't set out to be raw or, or I'm just kind of, I'm weirdly sort of unfiltered. Yeah, no, I, I loved it. I, I love people who are brave enough to speak the truth and say what is they really need to say. Is it brave or is it stupid? People are like, you're so brave. Again, I didn't even think of it as bravery. It was like, that's just, <laughs> I just wrote the truth. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? What was I going to dress it up in? Yeah, the story, I don't know, girl. The story is gnarly. Like, what am I going to, you know. <laughs> it's a fucking gnarly story. Like. I was all, ugh. Oh my God! Please have a happy ending. What was I supposed to do? Like, like, like that girl who like tweeted that after that day of sweeping the street, she's like, just hiked with underprivileged children for eight hours. I'm like, really? Is that what you call what sweeping human shit for the courts? Okay, that's so crazy. The best was when I ran into someone that I dated from the rooms like seven years before. That was the best. Yeah. Oh God! So I was like, what a god shot! What a god shot! Yeah, he's yeah, in a suit awesome. and I'm in a clean team uniform. I'm like, oh, how far <laughs> you think you think you got off this ride, huh? You blew it. I just tried to, <laughs> you got off the side board and tried to stab my ex-husband. You fucked up. I'm a missing cat. out on this. I got my dirty bun and my broom. <laughs> So mortifying. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. Lessons in humility. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's, that'll be the title of the podcast. Amy Dresner, Lessons in Humility. <laughs> That's super awesome. Well, listen, on that note, Amy, you are awesome. I fucking love you. I can't wait to meet you in person. I yes, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Of course. What's that? Oh. I said, yeah. of course. I can't wait to September. Yeah, you and I were yeah, chatting. Be super I was like, I love her. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll super look forward to it, and uh, look, I'll be cheering you on from the crowd. So if you ever feel uncomfortable, just know your girls in the audience, and uh, I'm sure I'll see you'll you. Come and say hi and give me a hug. Don't say the crowd. Oh, God, that terrifies me. me. Jesus Christ! What's that? It's only oh, God right now. I just have it. Just gave me a, a panic attack. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, think about it now, so that by the time you get there, you'll be like, "Oh yeah, old hat, <laughs> no big deal." <laughs> Well, listen, thank you so much. You so much. I really appreciate you coming on. You did you did great and thank you for the book and uh I'll look forward to seeing you in September. That's great. Okay, doll. All right. Take care. All right. Take Have take a good care. day. Bye. 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 
One last thing before you go, if you enjoyed the podcast today, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. And if you'd like to make a donation to the podcast and help me keep the lights on, you can do so by visiting odatchat.com. There's a donation button or membership button on the right hand side. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us.